Welcome to Hollywood, the podcast that explores the lives of history's greatest storytellers. I'm your host, Key Whiskey, and this is the second chapter in our ongoing series, Writers Under the Influence, featuring authors whose lives and careers are, in the popular imagination, entangled with their relationships to substances. See this cute little vial here? That's crack, rock cocaine. Not only are barbiturates dangerous to his nervous system, but they destroy the inner resources. This is your brain on drugs. But the grim specters of heroin, marijuana, and cocaine. Oh, devil leaser. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Hell. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. That was the phrase that summed up the psychedelic movement of the 1960s, coined by Harvard psychology professor Timothy Leary, a pioneer in early acid experimentation and a leading advocate in the therapeutic potential of psychotropic drugs. Leary was eventually fired from Harvard when his controversial and questionable research attracted the ire of the public, so then he went on the road touring the country to spread the news of the psychedelic experience and promote the use of lysergic acid diethylamide, known more commonly by its initialism, LSD. LSD is the mind-altering drug that injected a dose of Technicolor, into what was otherwise a black-and-white post-war America made up of straight lines, straight values, and straight shooters. It played an important part in the countercultural revolutions that exploded across the US and the UK, just as responsible for putting the swing into the 60s as the Beatles, the miniskirt, the contraceptive pill, and Andy Warhol. But although we continue still to associate LSD with the long-haired, flower-power, hippy-dippy radicals of the decade, LSD's origins are actually pretty square. The chemical was first synthesized in 1938 by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman. The US military and the CIA were the first to begin researching LSD covertly, with the aim to weaponizing it as a mind-control drug. This research was inspired by Nazi experiments that took place in the Dachau concentration camp near Munich. The drug was tested on helpless populations like prisoners, addicts, and mental patients before it was deemed too unpredictable for martial use, and research was abandoned. However, by then, it had already fallen into the hands of the disillusioned and outspoken youth, and they weren't letting go. Not even when the US government outlawed LSD in 1968. The pair of authors we are looking at today were at the center of the psychedelic scene. They were contemporaries, countercultural icons, quarters of controversy, and campaigners for the use of psychedelics. They saw LSD not as a potential weapon for destruction and mind control as the CIA did, but as a tool for creation and mind expansion. The first author is Allen Ginsberg, best known for writing the groundbreaking epic tour de force, Howl, and for helping to found the Beat Generation. The second is Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and a bridging figure between the older Beat Generation and the new hippies that followed. Both men led lives that were as radical and uninhibited as their writing. They fought for freedom, Free thought, free speech, free expression, freedom from oppression, and freedom from traditional values. As we'll find out today, it is hardly surprising that in their quest for freedom and their defiance of social mores, Allen Ginsberg and Ken Kesey came across LSD and devoted much of their lives to the advocacy of psychedelic drugs. Erwin Allen Ginsberg was born in June 1926 in Newark, New Jersey, as the second son to a pair of middle-class leftist intellectuals from Russian-Jewish backgrounds. 
His father, Lewis, was a level-headed, middle-brow poet, high school teacher, and moderate socialist. Alan's mother, Naomi, on the other hand, was a spontaneous, passionate, and radical communist. Lewis and Naomi were an attractive, bohemian couple who raised their sons, Eugene and Alan, in the midst of Greenwich Village artistic circles and progressive political perspectives. Alan was literally part of the counterculture from the very beginning. As a baby, he was brought along by his parents as they attended experimental theatre performances and poetry readings, whereat Naomi would play her mandolin. But Lewis and Naomi's marriage was fragile, and the marital issues did not begin and end with their differing ideologies. Naomi was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and an unruly household nudist. She had a nervous breakdown before Alan was born in 1926, and her condition steadily deteriorated as time went on. She rotated in and out of the Ginsburg household and various costly sanitariums, undergoing shock treatment therapies and trying different medications. Nothing seemed to help. During her more delusional episodes, Naomi's devotion to the Communist Party intensified, and she was known to bring her young boys along to left-wing meetings and rallies. The family spent at least one vacation at a Marxist nudist camp in upstate New York. Naomi usually singled out and clung to her sensitive youngest son, Alan, for refuge, perceiving him as her only trustworthy relation, which suited her husband, Louis, perfectly fine. Louis dutifully took on more work to pay for Naomi's treatments, yet she never seemed to improve, and he understandably grew weary of his wife's condition. And so, young Alan, at this point only aged nine, took over as Naomi's primary carer. He comforted his mother, patiently trying to mollify her as she ranted and raved and confessed to hearing voices and made wild accusations about the FBI's covert attempts to plant mind control devices in her brain. Lewis was also the target of her exaggerated suspicion. She was convinced her husband and her mother-in-law were plotting to kill her. The upside to Alan's experiences with his mother was that he developed an enormous amount of compassion and tolerance for psychoses, neuroses, and personality disorders. Naomi exposed young Alan to a darker, more painful side of life. Despite such a traumatic upbringing, Alan seemed by all accounts a relatively normal and happy child. He was a model student with a dazzling academic record. He stayed out of trouble and was elected president of his high school debate club. To put it bluntly, Alan was a nerd. Physically, he was the smallest in his class, with braces and thick black glasses to match his head of thick black hair. His eyes and lips were big, and his nose was big, and his ears stuck out. Picture a young Jeff Goldblum or David Cross. Adding to his insecurities was his attraction to other boys. Alan became aware of his homosexuality very early in life. Money grew tight for the Ginsburgs over time because of Naomi's treatments, and the family eventually moved to a small apartment where Alan and his brother Eugene, five years his senior, had to share a bed. Alan would press himself up against his big brother's body and sleep close. The physical affection often got too much for Eugene, and he had to forcibly push his little brother away. Alan was obsessed with sex. He developed crushes on other boys in his class, and at one point echoed his mother's exhibitionist behavior when he stood naked on the front porch of his family's New Jersey home, exposing himself to passing traffic. Nobody noticed. Later, looking back on the incident, Alan said, quote, Perhaps my whole character is exhibitionistic. In 1943, aged 17, Alan was accepted into Columbia University on a scholarship. He was armed with book smarts, but little else. He had no world experience. He'd never traveled or had any kind of relationship outside his family, and he was low on self-esteem. He enrolled in a pre-law course, which made his no-nonsense father immensely proud. Lewis told anyone who'd listen his son was studying to be a labor lawyer, but he spoke too soon. A portion of Alan's compulsory courses were dedicated to literature and poetry, and the required reading ranged from Sophocles and Euripides and Plato to Dante, Machiavelli, and Montaigne. Alan didn't complain. He'd always been a voracious reader, 
and Columbia's English department was renowned across the country, especially with the famous literary critic Professor Lionel Trilling at the helm. Trilling recognised Alan's drive and talents and began mentoring him, encouraging the young and eager pupil to write poetry. Suddenly, labour law just didn't do it for Alan anymore. One snowy night in late 1943, Alan was climbing the stairs to his seventh floor dorm room, heading back to his desk to hit the books. All around him, the rooms and corridors were empty and quiet. Most students had gone home for Christmas, and the windows above the doors were dark, except for one at the far end, where a new boy had moved in. From behind the door came the sound of classical music. Alan was intrigued. He knocked. It was answered by, as Alan described, quote, The most angelic-looking kid I ever saw. This was Lucian Carr. He had blonde hair and pale skin and striking features. Lucian invited Alan in and produced a bottle of red wine and two glasses. Alan noted the bookcase overflowing with copies of progressive French literature and the walls adorned with Rousseau and Cezanne art prints. The boys talked long into the night about art and music and politics and culture. These late night conversations continued through the Christmas break. Alan developed his first college crush. One night, Lucien invited Alan to accompany him to a party in Greenwich Village. He had never been to the village and wrote excitedly in a letter to his brother, quote, Saturday, I plan to go down to Greenwich Village with a friend of mine who claims to be an intellectual and knows queer and interesting people there. I plan to get drunk Saturday evening. If I can, I'll tell you the issue. It was through Lucian that Alan came to know Jack Kerouac and William S. Burroughs. Both were older than him, Jack by four years, Burroughs by twelve. Alan was fascinated with Burroughs, or Bill as he was known, right off the bat. He considered him a sage and graceful man. Jack, on the other hand, needed to grow on him. Alan was initially appalled by the brute intellectual, but gradually fell in love with Jack. He plucked up the courage to tell Jack about his feelings, who sadly did not reciprocate. Nevertheless, the two men remained close friends. The group haunted the West End bar, falling in with an assortment of hustlers, junkies and other disreputable characters, and frequently degenerating into bouts of competitive drinking and loud, enthusiastic arguments over philosophical questions. It was during this period that they came up with the idea of the new vision, or what the world would come to know as the pattern-rupturing, law-breaking philosophy of the Beat Generation. Alan attempted to define this new vision in his journal, writing, quote, Since art is merely and ultimately self-expressive, we conclude that the fullest art, the most individual, uninfluenced, unrepressed, uninhibited expression of art is true expression and the true art. New York Times magazine writer John Clellan Holmes summed up the essence of the beat in clearer terms, relating it back to the lost generation of the 1920s and 30s. Clellan Holmes wrote, quote, More than a mere weariness, it implies the feeling of having been used, of being raw. It involves a sort of nakedness of mind, of soul, a feeling of being reduced to the bedrock of consciousness. In short, it means being undramatically pushed up against the wall of oneself. A man is beat whenever he goes for broke and wagers the sum of his resources on a single number. Alan's new friendship simultaneously enriched and derailed his life. In 1945, he was suspended from Columbia when the dean or headmaster of the college discovered Jack Kerouac in Alan's dorm room. The two young men were caught in bed together and although both in their underwear, they protested, truthfully it seems, that they hadn't been up to anything. Alan's pleas of innocence fell on deaf ears. He was hit with a year's suspension. Now, this is Alan's version of the incident, and this is the only reason why he was suspended, but it conveniently leaves out the details of some characteristically perverse pranks Alan is said to have played on his dorm's supposedly anti-Semitic cleaning lady, 
as well as the arrest of Alan and several acquaintances for the possession of stolen property following a car crash. Alan moved out of the dorm and into an apartment with his friends. Without the constraints of his studies, Alan was now free to immerse himself completely into the wild, fast-paced countercultural scene rising up around him. The roommates went for days without sleeping. They'd lay sprawled across a big double bed, talking until the wee hours of the morning, listening to jazz records and taking enormous amounts of benzedrine, a lively amphetamine originally created by pharmacists as a nasal decongestant, which was soon discovered to have pleasant, useful, and energizing side effects. They would crack open a nasal inhaler and extract the concertina strip of benzedrine from inside. The inhalers were available anywhere for 98 cents, and each one contained eightfold of blotting paper soaked with the drug. One and a half strips could get a person extremely high, and two strips would have you speeding for up to 18 hours. The strips were rolled into balls and washed down with a cup of coffee. They were hard to swallow and the taste was unpleasant. But the high was worth it to Alan and his friends and many creative intellectuals at the time who relied on Benzedrine's uplifting buzz as a source for creative energy and productivity. In 1947, Alan was dragged back to earth by the news that his mother Naomi had deteriorated so badly that only a surgical lobotomy could provide her relief. Alan was just 21 at the time, but technically he and his brother were Naomi's legal guardians since their parents had divorced. Alan took the advice of a psychiatrist and signed off his consent for his mother's lobotomy, a decision he said he, quote, always felt enormous guilt and uncertainty about. Naomi passed away in 1956, but her memory haunted Alan and his work for the rest of his life. He later went on to write a sort of eulogy for his mother in the form of a poem titled Kaddish, in which he grieved openly for Naomi's lost life. It became one of his most popular poems. Some of it reads, quote, Over and over, refrain of the hospital. Still haven't written your history. Leave it abstract. A few images run through the mind. Like the saxophone chorus of houses and years. Remembrance of electrical shocks. By long nights as a child in Patterson apartment watching over your nervousness. Eventually, the original beat poets all ran off to faraway places, and nothing was left to tether Alan to New York. He took off westward, crossing the country to live in San Francisco and give one last attempt at living a straight and narrow life. He got a steady job in the advertising industry, cleaned up his look, and moved into a grown-up apartment with a woman named Sheila, who accepted him into her life as an acting husband and father to her child. This made Alan's father happy, who had feared his son was irreparably corrupted by the likes of Burroughs and Kerouac, but it didn't leave Alan feeling very happy. There are also reports that Sheila found out about Alan's sexual history with other men and refused to sleep in the same bed. Defeated, Alan packed his things and turned his back for good on the comfortable, respectable, middle-class heterosexual lifestyle. He emerged from his disappointing and short-lived affair with Sheila just in time to meet the true love of his life, Peter Orlovsky. Alan fell in with the art scene of San Francisco as easily as he'd fallen in with the art scene in New York. One day, he was visiting the home of an artist named Robert Levine to view some of his paintings, many of which were of a naked young, yellow-haired boy. Alan was struck with this boy's beauty. He demanded to know who the subject was. Robert said, quote, Oh, that's Peter Orlovsky. He lives with me. As if on cue, Peter walked into the room. Alan and Peter were introduced. Peter was a timid, fragile, lonely fellow who hadn't long moved to San Francisco after being dumped by the military on account of communist suspicions. Robert Levine was the only person Peter knew in the city, and so he clung to him. Until he met Alan. As Alan would learn over the span of the next three decades, Peter could be difficult to live with. His childlike innocence came with a vulnerability and dependence that could stifle a lover's freedom. 
He was subject to severe bouts of depression that would find him locking himself in his room and weeping for days on end. But, like Alan, he craved tenderness and wished for a life companion. The new couple got an apartment together, exchanged formal vows with one another, and settled down like any other heterosexual husband and wife. Though fulfilled in love, Alan, verging on 30, was experiencing a tremendous case of writer's block and general aimlessness, and considered going back to college as a mature student. Instead, he decided to give writing one last shot and commit himself to writing full-time, living off a meagre $30 per week unemployment in order to sit down and write uninhibitedly about his various experiences and the various colourful characters he'd crossed during his New York City years. He wrote about small-time crime and hard drugs and womanising. Poetry at first came to him in flashes, individual lines and words that he'd scribble into his journal, but eventually he drew the lines all together and expanded upon them. The result was his most famous poem, Howl. In October 1955, Alan debuted Howl at the famous Six Gallery in San Francisco. Jack Kerouac came along to support his friend's reading and serve glasses of wine. The crowd was small but made up of significant people from the city's artistic community. In the audience was Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who ran a small printing press. He was so impressed by Alan's reading that he sent Alan a telegram the following morning that read, quote, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. When do I get the manuscript? Hal's first print run was limited. Alan dedicated the book of poems to Jack Kerouac, Lucien Carr, William Burroughs, and Neil Cassidy. But by its second printing, a complaint had been made in regards to the poem's references to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti was arrested. There was an obscenity trial that dragged on and on and featured heavily in the press. Photographs and updates ran in Time and Life magazine. It was the American equivalent of the obscenity trial of Lady Chatterley's lover in the UK. Ironically, Hal might have died a quiet death if it wasn't for the publicity making Alan and his work so famous. Hal became one of the most widely read poems of the century. In the end, the judge ruled against the obscenity charges and in favour of the literary merit. In fact, California judge Clayton Horn went so far as to declare that the work contained, quote, redeeming social content. The close of the trial marked the beginning of Alan's illustrious writing career. He travelled the world and threw his support behind his fellow beat poets and authors in their publishing careers. But as the 1960s approached, he began to shed his hipster image for the hippie life. In fact, he was credited with coining the term flower power. Though verging on 40, Alan was still a countercultural hero. Almost without trying, he created another career for himself as an activist. He became a gun for hire, guaranteed to show up at any kind of protest or rally against violence, from the Vietnam War to the war on drugs. But benzedrine was no longer the go-to drug. The high-speed, high-energy substance had been replaced by something slower, cooler. Alan was now all about LSD and the psychedelic revolution. In 1959, he offered himself up as a subject for a university experiment on acid. He decided that the drug was not merely an indulgence or form of intoxication. It could be used as a tool for investigating the nature of the mind. He stood by Harvard professor Timothy Leary, mentioned at the top of the episode, who would eventually become the most prominent public advocate for mass LSD consumption. Together, this pair of chemical crusaders took their pro-hallucinogen message to the world stage, inviting one and all to join them on a trip inside the mind. Turn on, tune in, drop out. But the trip was not to last. Alan went back on his drug advocacy later in life after travelling to India and being introduced for the first time to meditation and yoga. He became convinced that meditation and yoga were far superior in raising one's consciousness, though he still maintained that psychedelics could prove helpful when writing poetry. After all, he himself admitted that all his best work was written while under the influence of drugs. The one drug Alan outright took a stance against was nicotine. He recognised its harmful effects right around the time the rest of society was, but even then, he never managed to kick his smoking habit. He stuck to his cigarettes just as he stuck to his writing, 
right up until the bitter end. At Easter in 1997, after feeling poorly for quite some time, Alan was admitted to hospital and diagnosed with terminal liver cancer, the exact same disease that had claimed his father's life back in the 60s. Many of Alan's old friends had already passed away. Timothy Leary, after a long and well-publicized battle with cancer, was gone. Jack Kerouac was gone. Alan could sense it. Now it was his turn. And he wanted to die at home, not in a hospital bed. He returned to his East Village loft and got his affairs in order. Though facing the end of his life, he was still very concerned about the futures of all those near and dear to him. For Peter Orlovsky, Alan arranged to have his physical and financial needs met for the rest of his life. Alan also tended to his own funeral and burial arrangements. All the organising wore him down. Near the end, Alan was so weak he could hardly speak. In the early hours of April 5th, Alan slipped into a coma from which he never regained consciousness. He was found by his personal secretary and declared dead later that morning at 70 years old. Alan had been very productive in the final year of his life. He'd published a volume of selected poems with Eric Drucker, an artist who, in the decades to come, would conceive and design an animated film version of Howl. He was still teaching part-time at Brooklyn College. Two manuscripts sat on his desk awaiting his editing and final approval. He planned to do more travelling. Alan had also recorded a CD called The Ballad of the Skeletons with Paul McCartney and Philip Glass. Plans were in motion for Alan to feature on an episode of MTV's Unplugged to give a live poetry reading, accompanied by live acts from Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan and popular alternative musician and songwriter Beck. Unfortunately, the program never came to pass. In the wake of Alan's death, William S. Burroughs released a heartfelt statement, reading, quote, We were friends for more than 50 years. Alan was a great person with worldwide influence. He was a pioneer of openness and a lifelong model of candor. He stood for freedom of expression and for coming out of all the closets long before others did. He has influence because he said what he believed. I will miss him. William S. Burroughs, the last of the original beat poets, died mere months after Alan. Memorials for Alan were held across the country. Notable people from all kinds of creative industries came together to celebrate the life and irrepressible personality of the great Ginsburg. One such notable person was Ken Kesey, who had started out as an admirer of Alan's before becoming a good friend. He recalled the first time their paths crossed. The men had been at the same party, and Alan was standing over by the fireplace. This was after he'd published Howl, and nobody was really talking to him, even though they all recognised who he was. Finally, a woman got up the courage to approach Alan. She explained she was intimidated by him because he was a legend. Alan smiled and replied, quote, yeah, but I'm a friendly legend. The following excerpt comes from part one of Alan's famous poem, How. The poem, in its entirety, is a long, rambling riff describing the characters that exist on the margins of New York society, from the bohemians and homosexuals to the drug addicts and mentally ill. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold-water flats floating across the tops of cities, contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes, hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull. Ken Kesey was born in 1935 in a small town on the southeastern plains of Colorado. His mother, Geneva, grew up in Arkansas, 
and his father, Fred, was from Texas. Ken later described his father as a, quote, big, rebellious cowboy who never did fit in. Three years after Ken came little brother Chuck. In 1942, just months after the attack at Pearl Harbor, Fred defied his wife's objections and joined countless other young Americans enlisting in the Navy. He relocated his family to California and shipped off to war. With his father away, young Ken took the opportunity to run riot with his little brother. One of his most spectacular acts of mischief was the time he attempted to smoke out a hive of bees and ended up accidentally setting ablaze 700 acres of land. Fred Kesey's participation in the war was, fortunately, short and uneventful. When the war was over, the family migrated north to Oregon to settle in Springfield, a rustic rural city surrounded by woods and mountains and river rapids. They settled into a ranch house, which was to be their home for the next 10 years. Fred secured work making cheese at a local creamery cooperative, which he went on to manage. Meanwhile, Geneva set about forging friendships with the local dairy community. During the week before and after school and on weekends, Ken and Chuck helped out in the milking sheds at the creamery. Ken later admitted it was the closest thing he ever had to a real job. Along with the lessons on how to separate cream from milk, Fred taught his boys what are traditionally viewed as essential masculine values. Ambition, independence, grit, and fearlessness. Consequently, Ken grew up as a sort of natural-born leader and performer, brimming with confidence. He put on magic shows, wrote skits, sang in boys' chorus, practiced ventriloquism, and got involved in his school theatre productions. On weekends, the adventurous Kesey family fled the city to go on hunting, fishing, and camping trips. Ken loved nature so much that he sometimes brought it back home with him. He and his brother Chuck built a makeshift cage in the backyard for the purposes of housing whatever kind of creature they could capture. Once, they found an injured owl on a hiking trail and decided to adopt it as a pet. The owl didn't last long. It was killed when another of the boy's wild animals, a jealous raccoon, pushed a huge jar off a high shelf and killed it. As a teenager, Ken's love of the outdoors translated well into the world of sport. Fred had a rule for his sons. They had to do a sport. And though he hoped his eldest boy would take up boxing, Ken instead gravitated to football and wrestling, quickly becoming the star player on each of his high school teams. He was a model 1950s all-American alpha male. Blonde, blue-eyed, tall and athletic. The only thing keeping him from being a full-blown jock was his zany personality and academic prowess. Ken was voted most likely to succeed in his 1953 graduating class. Indeed, things were looking pretty damn good for him. He had secured himself a football scholarship to the University of Oregon and made a girlfriend out of his longtime crush, Norma Faye Haxby. The couple went on to elope while still in college. By that time, Ken had abandoned football. At 177 pounds, or 80 kilograms, he described himself as, quote, Too small to play guard, too slow to play backfield, and too stubborn to admit it. So, Ken returned to wrestling a sport that better matched his strong, meaty build. Again, he shot to the top. In fact, he almost made the 1960 US Olympic wrestling team before a dislocated shoulder forced him to the sidelines. Another big part of Ken's college experience was his fraternity membership and the social life that came with it. He and Faye were well and truly a couple by the time he joined Beta Theta Pi but this did not stop him from pursuing or occasionally courting other girls. To the shock of his frat brothers, who, like Ken, had grown up knowing only nuclear families, Ken chased girls openly and, evidently, with Faye's approval. This relationship dynamic becomes important later in Ken's life. In 1955, Ken graduated from the University of Oregon and set out for the bright lights of Hollywood. He'd always been a film buff, and he was a huge fan of Marlon Brando, so the idea of making it to the big screen was too tempting to ignore. And sure, he had talent in spades, enough charisma for seven men, but he had no connections, 
and no clear idea how he would break into the industry. Auditions were few and far between, even after Ken landed an agent, and so most of his time in LA was spent reading, writing, and suntanning. Then, Ken found himself in a situation known all too well to Hollywood dreamers and hopefuls, especially during the era of casting couch kings Harry Cohn and Daryl F. Zanuck. Ken became the target of overt sexual advances by a male industry insider who dangled opportunities in exchange for sex. Ken turned down the propositions. He wasn't cut out for Tinseltown. He needed a new pursuit. By some miracle, Ken landed yet another scholarship. He won the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to Stanford University to study creative writing with Wallace Stegner. He and Faye moved to Perry Lane, a bohemian stretch of cottages on Stanford's Palo Alto campus. Looking around the classroom on the first day, Ken realized he had stumbled into the big leagues. Fellow students included the soon-to-be-famous novelists Larry McMurtry, Wendell Berry, Peter Beagle, Ed McClenaghan, Ernest Gaines, and Robert Stone. To support himself while studying, Ken signed up as a subject for some private clinical drug trials being held at the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital, located a couple of blocks from Stanford University. Researchers paid volunteering subjects $25 per visit to take various substances and have their reactions monitored and documented. One of the substances was LSD. Ken came to believe the drug had life-changing potential and should be made accessible to anyone who was interested in trying it. So he and some fellow volunteers hatched a scheme to liberate a batch of LSD from the hospital and share it with their friends, sometimes even incorporating it into his famous chili dish and serving it out at parties. When the trials wound down, Ken got a job as an orderly on the psychiatric ward of the same hospital. He desperately needed the money now that he and Faye had a brand new baby, a daughter named Shannon. During the slow graveyard shifts, Ken worked on a new writing project for Wallace Stegner's class, drawing inspiration from the real-life characters who surrounded him on the psychiatric ward, including both patients and hospital staff. There are even some reports that Ken secretly underwent shock therapy treatment just so he could better describe the procedure in his writing. Though this was never confirmed, it was absolutely true that Ken's creativity was more or less helped along by the regular doses of psychoactive drugs he continued to experiment with. Before long, he had a complete manuscript, which he pushed under the noses of his teachers and fellow students at Stanford. With a little bit of editorial advice and guidance, the manuscript became the best-selling debut novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The title was taken from a children's rhyme that Ken's grandmother used to recite to him as a boy. One flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. For so long, Ken had felt like a bit of a dunce in his Stanford class of promising young writers, yet he had beaten them all to the publishing punch. With its extraordinary perspective and groundbreaking story, Cuckoo's Nest was an immediate critical and commercial success. Ken, only 26 years old at the time, became internationally famous. Fame was something he felt ambivalent about. He didn't hate it, nor particularly enjoy it. But it did give him the financial freedom to continue writing, as well as support his growing family. By the time Ken published his follow-up book titled Sometimes a Great Notion, about a proud Oregon logging family caught up in the drama of a local union strike, he and Faye had added a couple more children to their troupe, two boys named Zane and Jed. Though Great Notion failed to attract the same level of attention as Ken's first book, it sold well, and many critics consider it to be his magnum opus. At age 28, the now two-time best-selling author and father of three decided it was time for some fun. The swinging 60s were well underway, and Ken wanted to rejoin the party. With the money made from his two books, Ken bought a 1939 yellow school bus. The previous owners had already added beds and a kitchen. All it needed now was some color. In the Kesey family backyard in La Honda, California, Ken and his friends painted the vehicle in psychedelic colors and designs, 
before psychedelic had even become a thing, instantly turning the bus into one of the most recognisable symbols of the hippie movement. They also gave it a name, the Further, because that's where they planned to go. Ken and his friends gave themselves a name too, the Merry Pranksters. Ken was made their undisputed leader. The pranksters donned matching striped shirts as a sort of uniform, rounded up some extra ragtag passengers, purchased a video camera, and headed out across the country towards New York on a fantastical LSD and marijuana-filled road trip. LSD wasn't illegal yet, but marijuana certainly was. And the only reason Ken and his friends got away with driving cross-country doing illegal drugs and being weird as all hell was because they had a clean-cut college white boy image. None of the pranksters really fit the mold of the long-haired, scruffy hippie. And if they did attract police attention, the cops didn't know what to make of them. The oldest member of the bus was its driver, 40-year-old Neil Cassidy, a fast-talking, speed-taking holdover from the Beat Generation. The same Neil Cassidy that was friends with Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. There is one insane scene from Ken's video camera footage, still available on YouTube today, when Neil gets up from his place behind the steering wheel, leaving the bus completely unmanned while traveling 60 miles per hour. He begins to walk down the passageway into the main cabin before the bus lurches and throws him back into the driver's seat. Neil resumes steering. The passengers, probably high on acid, do not even notice how close they came to crashing. After the road trip was over, Ken and his friends kept the party going back in California. They rented local halls and held screenings of their road trip footage for all their friends. The screenings grew and evolved into all-out dance parties and festivals. A rock band named The Warlocks provided the music. They would soon become the legendary band The Grateful Dead. Many significant figures came into Ken's orbit at this time, including Allen Ginsberg, Hunter S. Thompson, author Tom Wolfe, and the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. Because this was still the 60s, drugs were everywhere. LSD was provided to partygoers in big tubs of Kool-Aid. Again, I'll mention that LSD was still legal at this time, unlike marijuana. And when Ken was caught with marijuana in 1966, he was arrested and prosecuted for possession. Ken decided he wasn't ready for jail just yet, so he commits suicide. Or at least he pretended to. He penned a phony goodbye world suicide note, left it in a parked truck near an ocean cliff, then hid out in the boot of a friend's car and hopped the border into Mexico, where his family waited for him. They rented a house on the beach, Ken, Faye, and their three children, and Carolyn Adams, also known as Mountain Girl, a woman with whom Ken was carrying out an extramarital relationship. It wasn't a secret affair, because Faye knew all about it. Ken and his family spent the next eight months on the beach, swimming, fishing, getting stoned, listening to music, catching up with friends who came down to visit, avoiding the FBI, and soaking up the local scene. With Faye's blessing, Mountain Girl fell pregnant with Ken's baby and gave birth to a daughter named Sunshine. It didn't take long for word to spread that Ken was actually alive and on the lam in Mexico. One newspaper headline read, quote, Casey's corpse found having a ball in Puerto Vallarta. By September of 1966, Ken had grown bored of Mexico. He returned to U.S. soil to face the music and was handed a six-month sentence to be served at the San Mateo County Jail in Palo Alto. In 1967, 31-year-old Ken was a free man again. But a year of legal troubles, nomadic living, and jail time had taken its toll. Ken wanted to settle down, even though the 60s counterculture was still raging on. So he left California and returned home to Oregon. Ken and Faye bought a small cattle farm, mere miles away from where they'd grown up. They stored the old further bus in the backyard where it was left to rust. Ken now drove a tractor, rose early, and devoted his time to his family. This included Sunshine, Ken's daughter with Mountain Girl. The Kesey kids lived an idyllic rural childhood, running wild about the property and caring for animals and doing farm chores. Every now and again, the merry pranksters came to visit. The pranksters that were ready to settle down like Ken moved into homes nearby. 
Ken was still writing, but not seriously, and he wasn't working on any novels. His first two novels continued to sell and were rewritten for the stage. Come the early and mid-70s, the novels were then adapted into major motion pictures. Ken had finally broken into Hollywood, but not in the way he'd originally planned as a younger man. Sometimes a great notion was the first to go into production. From the studio that gave you airport, now sometimes a great notion. These are the Stampers of Oregon. Their motto, never give a inch. Hollywood descended upon Oregon, with several small towns playing host to big stars Henry Fonda, Paul Newman, and Lee Remick. Ken was welcome to the set, even when it was closed to the public. Ken's experience with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was far less enjoyable. He wrote the screenplay, only to have it rejected by the film's producers. It's hard to tell whether Ken was fired or if he quit, but either way, he was off the books only two weeks into film production. Ken's grievances were many. He wanted Gene Hackman for the lead role, not Jack Nicholson, who he claimed was too short for the role of Randall McMurphy. Ken was also incensed that producers, and later Nicholson, didn't want the Indian chief as a narrator for the film, as he is in the novel. He sued for $869,000 and won an undisclosed amount, but the dispute left Ken with a lingering disdain for the mechanics of Hollywood. Cuckoo's Nest went on to win five Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay. The winner is... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. To put it in perspective, only two other films have ever won the Big Five. The 1934 black and white film It Happened One Night and the 1991 thriller Silence of the Lambs. Ken's resentment ran deep. He never saw the film. Years later, he claimed to unknowingly stumble upon the film while flicking through TV channels late one night. He began to watch until he realised it was Cuckoo's Nest, then quickly changed channels. The 80s brought about Ken's most difficult years. He was a great dad who loved all his children equally, but he had a particularly soft spot for his youngest son, Jed, who was once seriously injured as a toddler when his father's car had collided with a train. Back then, Ken had removed his unconscious son from the wreck and carrying his limp body, ran from door to door looking for help before stopping to revive the boy with CPR himself. Ken brought Jed back from the brink of death, but he wasn't there to do it again when, in 1984, Jed was involved in another accident. He was an athlete on the University of Oregon's wrestling team, just as his dad had been back in the day. The team were traveling in a van on the way to a tournament when the van hit an ice patch, skidded, flipped over a guardrail and tumbled nearly 200 feet or 60 meters down a slope. The roof of the van ripped off and all 12 passengers were ejected. Jed and one other boy were fatally injured. Friends and family rallied around Ken and Faye and their children, helped them to get through what would be the most devastating period in all their lives. Young Jed was buried in a backyard ceremony in a homemade redwood coffin filled with keepsakes, including a quartz watch, photos, and a leather-bound Bible. Some of his college friends tucked a rolled joint into his pocket like father, like son. Attendees sang and embraced and remarked that, all in all, it was a wonderful ceremony. Throughout the 1990s, Ken slowed down. He was diabetic and suffered a stroke in 1997. He developed liver cancer. In 2001, he died from complications following surgery. He was 66 years old. Ken was buried beside his son on the family farm in Oregon. His gravestone reads, Sparks Fly Upwards. The following is an extract from the opening chapter of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We meet the terrifying antagonist, Nurse Ratched, through the narration of the giant American Indian, Chief Bromden. The Chief has been a resident of the mental health ward, pretending to be deaf and mute since the end of World War II. 
I'm mopping near the ward door when a key hits it from the other side, and I know it's the big nurse. By the way, the lockworks cleave to the key. Soft and swift and familiar, she'd been around lock so long. She slides through the door with a gust of cold and locks the door behind her, and I see her fingers trail across the polished steel, tip of each finger the same colour as her lips. Funny orange, like the tip of a soldering iron. Colour so hot or so cold, if she touches you with it, you can't tell which. She's carrying her woven wicker bag like the ones the Umpqua tribe sells out along the hot August highway, a bag shape of a toolbox with a hemp handle. She's had it all the years I've been here. It's a loose weave, and I can see inside it. There's no compact or lipstick or woman stuff. She's got that bag full of a thousand parts she aims to use in her duties today. Wheels and gears, cogs polished to a hard glitter, tiny pills that gleam like porcelain, needles, forceps, watchmaker's pliers, rolls of copper wire. She dips a nod at me as she goes past. I let the mop push me back to the wall and smile and try to foul her equipment up as much as possible by not letting her see my eyes. They can't tell so much about you if you got your eyes closed. Thanks for listening to Hollyword. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Key Whiskey. Special thanks to my guest, Jared Doyle, for voicing Alan Ginsberg and Ken Kesey. Please visit our website, hollywordpodcast.com, to find show notes, a list of sources, and more information. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. Join me next time for another dive into the lives of history's greatest storytellers. Good night.